You fill up my senses Like night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain This is Our American Stories And every once in a while We like to play John Denver songs I love John Denver and Jesse's just shaking his head. But this is Greg's segment. Yes. Greg, this is Greg's segment. And by the way, the thing about music that's so great is it brings people together and it separates people. <laughs> How could this song ever separate anybody? Well, it did. There are some people who, once you play John Denver, they have to go into a laboratory. Oh, I just don't understand. It's not me. I actually love John Denver it's and great. Metallica. So go figure. Put <laughs> yeah. me in a very unique category. But I like everything. And so Greg stumbled upon a story, well, that we just had to do. Greg... Tell us a little bit about this young lady uh, that we're about to report on. Yeah, her name is Kaylee, and her she wrote a, a blog, and it kept popping up on my social network Facebook page. And after a while, you know, I'm scrolling down, and a certain amount of times you see it where you're thinking, oh, this must be a good piece because I keep seeing it on different people's feed, sharing it. So I'm like, fine, I'll click on it. And I read it, and I was blown away. It's a piece um, that's very unique in that... Uh, it's about adoption, but it's atypical, and you're going to see why. Well, let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Kaylee. I have unruly red hair, brownish eyes. People say, did you know your eyes match your hair? And freckles. I feel most alive when I'm outdoors or making something with my hands. I describe things in my head when I'm alone, thinking of how I'd write them if someone were to ask. I've always been partial to kittens in rainy days. I thrive on seasons, although my three years of living in California were some of my favorite years so far. Also, I'm adopted. pretty much always been adopted. I took my first breath and my birth mother held me. She had already chosen some people for me to call mommy and daddy. I waited in a foster home for a couple of months and then I was adopted. I remember reading books about adopted kids growing up. I remember how they would find out. It was always at a birthday party or in an argument. Someone would carefully plan how to break the news, or they'd blurt it out in a spot of anger. Books made adoption seem like a secret. Not the good kind of secret, like what you bought your dad for Christmas, but the kind of secret that hurts a little. The kind nobody really wanted to tell you, and that they thought you should probably know anyway. The kind that makes your life spiral out of control, your identity suddenly in crisis. That's not my story. My parents were proud. Being adopted was a special gift. My parents would tell me the story of how they got me every night before bed. I loved hearing it. I loved hearing how they prayed and prayed for a baby, how God found the perfect woman to carry their baby for them, and how the lady whose tummy I was in so generously and lovingly gave me to them. In this story, I was not someone to be ashamed of that nobody wanted. 
I was someone to be proud of that was cherished and plucked by the hand of God himself to be placed in the most perfect family. In my mind, everyone was adopted. I remember being at a friend's house and not being able to sleep. Her mom snuggled me and offered to tell me a story. What does your mom tell you when you can't sleep, she asked. She tells me the story of how she got me. How did you get your kids? I remember her hesitating and chuckling, asking what my mom tells. I told her of my adoption and I'm sure she sighed a sigh of relief, knowing she didn't have to have that talk with me. So I say this to the mama who is pregnant. The mama who feels so lost and in over her head, not knowing if she can do this, or if she wants to, or if this little life should end. Adoption is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is one of the most selfless and loving things you can do for that baby in your womb. There is a man and woman out there waiting for a call. A call that they can finally have a baby. When my dad found out my mom had gone out to get Christmas presents, they had literally waited by the phone and checked messages for months and months, hoping for news of a baby. Dad wrote down all the information, hung a special card on the tree, and waited. My mom came home, and I just remember that picture they always show me. It's a picture of her looking at this card, her hand over her mouth, and complete and utter joy, disbelief, and excitement flooding her face. That picture alone makes me feel so completely loved and wanted. Imagine my life with them, full of love, full. They fostered a love for my birth mother inside of me as well. So mama, consider this. Maybe this baby is meant to be yours. To be held and snuggled. To listen to your comforting voice and grow up in your home. But don't forget, adoption is beautiful and special and maybe someone has been praying that the Lord would send them a babe. Either way, your baby has a life worth living. worth every second. Yeah, and that wasn't ordinary, Greg, anything. But you also comment here that you, you dug up some Facebook responses and comments, which are always interesting. This was one quote, I did not give up anything. In fact, I did not give up when I chose adoption. I never gave up. I kept going. Our decision was not about giving up anything, but about giving everything. Life, love, and hope. And Lindsay Kruger, who works at Adoption Option, a child placement agency, said a misconception in her field is that a child is placed in adoption because the birth mother didn't care or just gave up or rejected their child. She said this couldn't be further from the truth. They want the best life possible for their children and feel that at this time they cannot provide that. Through the pain and loss that these births moms go through, it is beautiful to see the immense love they have for their child, Kruger says. And Greg, thanks for this piece on Kaylee's life, and thank you, Kaylee, for doing it. And we love doing these adoption stories. They just, well, it's love of a stranger incarnate. This is Our American Stories. Just let your love go.
is Our American Stories, and on this day in history in 1628, the author of the second biggest-selling book of all time, only behind the Bible, was born. This was a book in every American household throughout much of our history, but you may not have ever heard of it or about it until now. In the year 1676, a poor tinker named John Bunyan was imprisoned in Bedford Jail. While he was there, he started to write one of the most famous books in the English language. And everything is told as if it happened in a dream. I dreamed, he says, that I saw a man with a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. As he read the book, he began to weep. Then, in a lamentable voice, he cried out, What shall I do to be saved? For he lived in the city of destruction, which he learnt from his book was doomed to be burnt with fire from heaven, and everyone who lived there would perish in the flames. The Pilgrim's Progress is a spiritual allegory that follows the path of Christian, an everyman character weighed down by his burden of sin. He leaves the city of destruction and learns that nothing can remove his burden other than the cross of Christ. The over three centuries old novel begins behind bars. Its author John Bunyan opens with a sentence of luminous simplicity that has the haunting compulsion of the hook in a great melody. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. A den is a prison. You see, Charles II, the King of England, passed a law forbidding people to preach unless they had a license from the state. But you couldn't get a license unless you agreed with the tax-supported Anglican Church. And Bunyan certainly didn't. On one such occasion, he was asked to stop preaching, and he would be set free. He replied, If you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. Those now famous words led to a nearly 12-year imprisonment for unlawful preaching. It was during this time that he began to pen his classic work. Published in February of 1678, it quickly became one of the most popular stories of all time. Over 100,000 copies were sold within his lifetime alone. And today, with 250 million copies sold, it is one of the most widespread books in existence. It is a book every American had been exposed to until the last few decades. It has been translated into over 200 languages, and it has never been out of print. As with everything in this story, there is no hiding the truth about who the characters are and what they want with the protagonist. For example, Christian encounters people named piety, simple, sloth, presumption, faithful, talkative, crafty, or little faith, and the readers see each character live up to its name. And throughout the story, Christian is being overcome by his burden of sin, which is literally a massive Santa-sized pack on his back. 
that he is incapable of delivering himself from. Pilgrim continued upon his way as the enemy of his soul increased his efforts against the traveler. On his way to the celestial city, Christian is diverted by the secular ethics of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. How rude of me. My name is Wiseman. Worldly Wiseman. You, of course, will have heard of my family. We are high stock, we are, if I do say so. Oh, yes, yes. Ask us anything, anything you like, and you will find the answer. Who urges him to lead a practical, happy existence apart from Christ. The evangelist. Ha! Dullards, the whole lot of them. They are pilgrim. Dullards, dullards. His way, utter foolishness. He instead encourages Christian... I want to help you. ...to seek deliverance from his burden through law and rule-keeping. I perceive you are a religious man, which is good, good, very good. The world needs more religious people. It does, Pilgrim, it does. With the help of Mr. Legality and his son, Civility, from the village of Morality. Mr. Legality will show you how to be rid of that burden of yours. Evangelist meets the wayward Christian and shows him that Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Mr. Legality, and his son, Civility, are false guides, descended from slaves who look to enslave other would-be pilgrims. When Christians unto carnal men give ear, out of their way they go and pay for it dear. For Master Worldly Wise Man can but show a saint the way to bondage and to woe. Then as Christian walks along the wall of salvation, he sees Christ's tomb and cross. At this vision, his burden falls to the ground. The journey continues along a road filled with monsters and spiritual terrors. Christian confronts such emblematic characters as giant despair, ignorance, and the demons of the valley of the shadow of death. Often disguised as something that would help him, evil continues to accompany Christian on his journey, but friends hopeful and faithful also join him. The two enter the wicked town of Vanity and visit its famous fair, called Vanity Fair, which lasts year-round. Indeed, there are stalls where every foolish trifle in the world is up for sale. In addition, you could buy titles, and honors, and preferment to high office, and vain pleasures, and empty delights of every kind. It is an institution of long-standing, artfully set up by the Prince of the Demons, Beelzebub himself, in a place through which all who are pilgrims and strangers in this world must pass when going to the celestial city. Many, it is feared, get no further on their way. They resist temptation and are mocked by the townspeople. Why aren't you buying our merchandise? Buy, buy, buy. Eventually, the citizens of Vanity imprison Christian and Faithful for mocking their local religion. Faithful defends himself at his trial and is executed, rising to heaven after death. 
but Christian escapes and continues his journey. With his new companion, Hopeful, they vanquish many enemies before arriving at the Celestial City with the line that still reverberates through the English literary tradition. So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. There's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership or its influence on writers as diverse as William Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Nathaniel Hawthorne, E.E. E. Cummings, Mark Twain, C.S. Lewis, John Steinbeck, and even Enid Blyton. Huckleberry Finn speaks for many readers when recalling his Mississippi education, he says. There were some books, too, piled up perfectly exact on each corner of the table. One was a big family Bible full of pictures. One was Pilgrim's Progress, about a man that left his family. It didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statements was interesting, but tough. The Pilgrim's Progress is likely one of the greatest works of literary allegory that exists. I realize how bold that statement might be, but one only reads the book to find the truth steeped in that boldness. In Hollywood terms, the novel has a perfect arc. While Pilgrim's Progress charts the arc of the Christian journey, it's not limited to the Christian experience. Truly the brilliance of John Bunyan is realized in his astute understanding and the following portrayal of the human journey and condition as seen through Christian's eyes. Bunyan had a wonderful ear for the rhythms of colloquial speech, and his allegorical characters come to life in dialogue that never fails to advance the narrative. Story is one thing. The simple clarity and beauty of Bunyan's prose is something else. Braided together, style and content unite to make The Pilgrim's Progress a timeless classic. This Day in History Great job as always, Greg, and as always are this Days in History brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to see all of their free and online courses. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, John Bunyan was born in 1628. Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat. Both 
an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A, an airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. 
I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I'm a danger to my patient. There's now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable, at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner.
And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories, and now we bring you the story of a Frenchman of, well, let's just say epic proportions, who had a major influence on the world of American entertainment. Here's Jesse. This is the story of a giant. If you're old enough to recognize the theme music here, you probably know exactly who we're talking about. The most famous giant in modern times, also known as the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant stood at seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed over 500 pounds. Now, his height is actually debated, but I'll go with the bigger numbers because he deserves it, and that's the numbers his own website quoted. He was undefeated in the world of pro wrestling from 1973 to 1987 and held the title of the WWF World Heavyweight Champion of the World. Now, we all know that pro wrestling is just for fun, right? But trust me, you wouldn't want to get thrown across the ring or sat on by this guy. Live to my left, the one and the only Andre the Giant and Andre the wrestling fans, indeed, the general public all over the entire world welcome the opportunity to see you in person. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate that. And you say I'm traveling all over the world, entire world, and I'm very happy traveling all over the world, and very happy to see all those people, all different people, and all different countries. A world-famous wrestler, Andre the Giant was also an actor in films like The Princess Bride. Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. Born Andre Rosimov in France, his parents and four other siblings were all of pretty normal size. He suffered from a disease known as giantism, which gave him an overabundance of growth hormones, which made his body continue to grow through his entire life. He was six foot three and 208 pounds by the time he was 12 years old. Here's Andre's brother, Jacques, talking about growing up with Andre on the farm. My parents were very cool. We had a lot of freedom. Of course, we had to work a lot because at that time we didn't have a lot of money. So on Thursdays with my brother, we had to cut wood to heat the house. And that was a good way to pass the time. My brother really started to grow when he reached 16. Yeah, when he was 16. He was kind of a curiosity. Of course, everybody looked at him. They turned their heads as he passed. He was very strong, that's for sure. We had a flat tire in the back, and we didn't have a jack, so I unscrewed all the lug nuts, except for one. Suddenly, he lifted the car, and I would take the spare tire, and we wouldn't need a jack anymore. That's when we could tell he was strong. Being so big wasn't very easy for young Andre. In fact, he was too big to fit on the school bus by this age, 
and his parents couldn't afford a car to get him to and from school. Luckily, Andre had a kind neighbor with a truck that would help him get back and forth to school. This kind neighbor just happened to be Nobel Prize winner and esteemed playwright Samuel Beckett. Andre dropped out of school after the 8th grade because he didn't really think he would need an education to work on his father's farm. Eventually, his sheer size and weight caught the eye of a local wrestling promoter who convinced him to move to Paris at the age of 17. He was taught professional wrestling back when guys actually wrestled without all the stage antics like we see in the world of pro wrestling today. But it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to wrestle the giant. He didn't know his own strength and it was hard to find an opponent willing to take him on. But he gradually made a name for himself and he toured all over the world as a spectacle in the sport until he was hired by Vince McMahon Sr., founder of the World Wrestling Federation known at the time as the WWF, which went on to become WWE. Little disclaimer here, I don't watch this stuff anymore. I, I sure liked it when I was a kid. Andre the Giant was the best. He soon became an international celebrity, and people would drive for miles just to see him in action. On March 26, 1973, Andre the Giant debuted as WWF fan favorite, defeating Buddy Wolf in New York's Madison Square Garden. Fast forward to 1987, and he was wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania three in Pontiac, Michigan. There were 93,173 people in the crowd that night, the largest recorded attendance of a live indoor event in North America at the time, a record that would stand until 1999 when Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis. Here's Hulk Hogan. Andre is a superstar. He was the biggest and greatest superstar this business has ever known and ever will know. I mean, he was Andre the Giant. He's the one that laid the groundwork for Hulk Hogan, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, for The Rock, for anybody else that walks through this, these doors of the WWE universe, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Andre the Giant. You know, and, and to know him as a superstar and the Giant, I remember when I was a fan, I used to watch him and he would just put his hand on the top rope and lean over the top rope when he was in his prime and I would just look at his hip and his leg hanging off the ring. It looked like a Clydesdale. You know, it was bigger than anything I'd ever seen and never dreamed I'd be friends with him or ever get to meet him. But, you know, to fast forward to, you know, him being the greatest of all time and as a person, what he went through. Because if I would walk behind him in the airport, I would hear, oh my gosh, did you see that guy? Or a lot of very unkind things were said, you know, and he could hear him. And, and for him to walk through and be as kind of a person as he was and as gentle of a person because if he would have been a mean person there would have been none of us around there would have been talk about the guy that never got pinned that would have been the guy by most accounts andre was a jovial giant content to play cards socialize and enjoy all the food and drink his success afforded him during matches he amused himself by stepping on an opponent's long hair or wringing out the sweat from his singlet into their face in one bout Jake the Snake Roberts recalled that Andre waited until Roberts was on the mat as he squatted down and unleashed his flatulence. According to Roberts, this went on for 30 seconds because giants fart for extremely long periods of time. Aside from wrestling, Andre the Giant landed several roles in the movies. Most notably, he played Fazik in The Princess Bride. Here's co-producer of that unforgettable film, Rob Reiner. Andre was a great guy, very smart, but Andre liked to drink. Andre liked a little drink. One day he comes to work and I said, Andre, uh, what did you do last night? And he says, uh, I went to the bar, had a couple of drinks. I said, well, what do you drink? He says, uh, three bottles of cognac, six bottles of wine. I said, 
Andre, do you get? You must have been drunk. He said, "No, I don't. I don't get drunk. A li little tipsy, but no." So now, the day we're supposed to shoot the ending of the movie, which we shot and didn't use because we have, you know, Peter Falk saying, "As you wish." We had the little boy after Peter Falk leaves. He leaps through the book and he starts, you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window and he sees them and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds, so there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on, like, cables. And uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out. And he started drinking about 9 o'clock. He drank, like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais. And I'm now at the end of a day, it's 8 o'clock at night, I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios, it's kind of a misty rain, and they open the, the, the doors of the stage, and there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me, and he's going, hello, boss, like this, and I'm thinking, what do I do for a living? Andre the Giant's drinking habits were legendary. Reports say that he could drink anywhere from 100 to 200 beers in one sitting, and it wouldn't even give him a buzz. Wrestling promoter Arnold Scotland remembers one particular night at a bar with Andre the Giant. One night he was in a bar in uh, Montreal, and he's guys come up and they were bothering him, you know, hey, you're not, you're big, but you're not strong. Andre said, look, I just come in here to drink. I don't want to, you know, no problems or anything. Well, these guys kept on, on him. They were, you know, feeling pretty good. Andre couldn't take it any longer. He finally got up and he went for him. They ran out and their car was parked on a, on a sidewalk right in front of the place. They jumped in the car and locked it. And Andre ran around to the side of the driver's side, trying to open the door. He couldn't. And, uh, he got so mad, he reached down and grabbed the car, and he turned it upside down on the sidewalk with the four guys in it. Now, Andre was able to leave the scene before police arrived to find an upturned car with four drunk hooligans inside. Imagine trying to explain to a cop that a giant had just tipped over their car. And this wasn't the only time. Andre would frequently move his friends' cars into positions that were impossible to get out of, like between two trees or sideways in their driveway. His hands were so large you could fit a silver dollar through one of his rings. Forget playing the piano or dialing a phone. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. To obtain a special dialing wand, please mash the keypad with your palm now. Andre the Giant could easily walk into a restaurant and eat 12 steaks and 15 lobsters in one sitting. But being seven foot tall with a fluctuating weight around 450 to 550 pounds, life was never easy. Tim White was Andre's friend and personal handler. You just gotta be in his shoes for a second to understand what he went through day in, day out. He couldn't hide from anybody. Wherever he went, he was public. People swarmed to him. Uh, when he got into a hotel room, the bed was too small. The shower came up to his waistline. His fingers were too big to dial the phone. I mean, the guy went through heck every day. And not once did he ever complain. Sometimes he wasn't private in his room because people would chase you up the elevator and find out what room and call your room all night. We've had it. We used to have to check out a hotel sometimes because it got to be too much. It was incredible to me, the patience that he had. Sadly, over the years, the effects of his medical condition had continued to wear down his body. Eventually, his immense size was just too much for his heart, and Andre the Giant died in Paris in his hotel room on January 27, 1993. 
His body was flown back to the United States where his remains were cremated and scattered on his ranch in North Carolina. The ashes weighed 17 pounds. He was 46 years old when he died, and doctors told him he wouldn't live past 40. Though professionally, Andre will always be remembered as the eighth wonder of the world. He's known and loved by fans across the globe as the Gentle Giant. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Our American Stories, and this month we're celebrating National Adoption Month, and we'll be bringing you adoption stories throughout the course of November, and today we want to introduce you to the Willoughby family. They had three kids of their own, and the last one was about to graduate high school, and then they adopted seven more from China. They have shared their story in order to spread awareness about adoption and to encourage others to adopt as well. Virgil and Cindy Willoughby live in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and they join us now. Before we get into the adoption story, I want to hear about each of you individually, and I want to start, Cindy, with you first. Where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your parents and the values uh, that they raised you with. Talk about that if you could. I grew up in Coleman, Alabama, just a small town, halfway between Birmingham and Huntsville, and uh, um just was raised in a very close-knit family, all my extended family on my mom's side lived within about a mile of us. So I grew up, everything kind of centered around family. I have two brothers, and uh, my parents were just very involved in our lives. And I never knew a day that I didn't feel loved as a child. I had a great childhood. I was very blessed, uh, and I realized I was very blessed with that. It's a good thing to know you're blessed. I mean, some people are blessed and they don't know it, and that's really terrible. Yes, it is. It is the same. Yeah. And uh, and so you you spend your time there, and, and when when do you leave home? Do you do you go away at some point in time? Um, talk about that next phase of your life, going from childhood to adulthood, before we bring in uh, Virgil and talk a little bit about his life and then how you met. Okay. Oh, I actually. When we met would be when I left home. So I, I got married right out of high school. And uh, um, so my story kind of intertwines with Virgil's almost immediately. But so, like I said, I, my childhood was just a very close-knit community. And uh, um, and then I, I met Virgil and fell in love. And then I left home. And and did you leave town with Virgil, or did you leave town to go off to college? Talk about that that next step in your life, and then we're going to bring in Virgil. Okay. No, actually, um, I chose not to go to college. I I just wanted to be married and uh, be Virgil's wife and spend my life with him, and so college was just not something that I felt uh, I wanted to do. Uh, and so 
um, after we got married, he was in, we were he was in the military, and so I moved uh, to uh, where he was stationed at that point, which was Savannah, Georgia, and uh, um, so that was uh, and actually I. I, I guess I'll kind of jump ahead because I'll just say we, we met on a blind date, and uh, um, that was over 34 years ago. So it's uh, we were one of those blind dates that worked out. <laughs> and and, so, well, and so many of them are so painful. I'm glad this one did turn turn for the better for you. And Virgil, tell me a little bit about yeah. uh, obviously your your family and your early life before you met your bride early in your life, which can be a very lucky circumstance for people to find love early and to start a family early. Sure. Talk about that, Virgil. Sure. Uh, I was raised here in the state of Kentucky, uh, very traditional um, parents. Uh, my dad worked construction. My mom was a stay-at-home mother, and uh, very fortunate. I was the baby of three boys, and uh, at the ripe old age of nine, my parents brought in a baby girl, and... Uh, uh, when I say brought in, and uh, that was uh, a natural-born child. However, uh, the attention went from from me to little sister. But again, uh, being uh, the, the age difference, obviously, I was doted on by, by two brothers, a mom and dad, and uh, kind of like what Cindy said, very blessed in, in the aspect of being raised in a Christian home. And uh, just there's uh, unconditional love in our home. And I uh, was just, uh, again, very, very blessed. My dad worked construction from the time I was big enough to hold a hammer. Uh, I worked with my dad, as did my brothers. And I knew that that was not really the life for me. So uh, I knew at 13 years of age I wanted to be a police officer. I thought, well, let's go in the Army at 18 uh, and get out. Uh, after three years, I'd be 21, come back to my hometown here in Elizabethtown and, and serve. But I met Cindy, uh, as she mentioned, on a blind date, uh, and that was in uh, 1982. We dated for about 15, 16 months, and right out of high school, uh, she was 18, I was 20, and, and we married. And uh, it's, uh, again, looking back uh, over these uh, 33 years of marriage, uh, just how God has intertwined our, our lives together, as well as our 10 children. And uh, Virgil, you served in the military. What branch? What did you learn in that service? How long did you serve? Uh, talk to us about that. You got uh, about a minute right here. Sure. Uh, uh, I was uh, again uh, eighteen. Joined the army for three years as an infantry. Uh, as an infantry guy, it just so happened that uh, uh, I, I served uh, the first twelve years in the state of Georgia. Seven of that first ranger battalion in Savannah, Georgia, as a mountain phase ranger instructor in Dahlonega, Georgia, and then uh, Fort Campbell, Alaska, and then the last year I was in here at Fort Knox before I retired uh, in my hometown. So I was fortunate to be able to serve for 20 years, and uh, it just so happened, uh, hired as a police officer uh, before I actually retired from the Army. So uh, I didn't have a lapse in, in in the two careers. And we find this so often is the case, Virgil. So many of the men in our, our police forces of America had served in the armed forces, and the idea of putting on a suit and tie or doing anything else but serving and protecting, it's just in your bloodstream, and, and that's what happens. And when we come back after the break, we're going to learn about the family building of the Willoughbys, what happened next, boy meets girl in high school, Goes off, serves in the military. The wife follows. They start raising a family. 
And then something magical happens on top of that. They discover the miracle of adoption and the love of a stranger. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the story of the Willoughby family, when we continue. This is Our American Stories, National Adoption Month. We're celebrating it all month long. The remarkable things people do with their lives, reaching out and helping complete strangers and bringing them into their lives, treating them as family, becoming family. Just beautiful. We don't hear enough beautiful storytelling in this country. It's always just, well, it's angry and it's yelling and it's screaming. And we don't do that here on Our American Stories. And we're rejoined by the Willoughby family. And when we left off... I had asked Virgil a question about his service, and one of the things I did, I always like to ask and did sort of hint around Virgil was, what, what did you learn in, in that time in the military, and what would you tell parents right now who are listening to a child thinking about joining the Army or the Marine Corps or the Navy or whatever branch uh, to serve their country? Talk about the, some of the things you learned and the career that you had uh, in the Army. Sure. Um, probably the biggest thing uh, is just service in and of itself. Um, there's an acronym uh, that, that the Army used when, when I was in, which was actually leadership, uh, L-D-R-S-H-I-P, loyalty, duty, respect, uh, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Now, all those characteristics uh, are, are blended uh, in so many different ways uh, based upon the job you do. And Truly, when, when I left uh, the Army uh, joining the, uh, the police force, I really thought a lot of those same characteristics would, would carry over, which they have. And, um, but there is nothing like serving. And uh, so uh, I, mean, I, I just look at Christ. Christ came uh, to this earth to serve. And again, it's it just the paramount, uh, the, the relationship and and in, in, in just serving, and that, that can be in the military, it can be uh, with the police. It's actually any any career, to be quite honest, to be successful, uh, we have to serve. And that's even in our families and how that's carried over uh, into our family. And Cindy is probably the best servant uh, that I've ever met, and I am very blessed. Uh, I tell people this, not tongue-in-cheek. But I am married to my hero because Cindy is the most selfless person that I know. So uh, we think about, again, in, in the military and all the other uh, careers that are out there where we have the opportunity to serve, but to be able to serve, uh, again, be able to serve the Lord, be able to serve your wife, to serve your children, and then to have a partner in this life that that serves me as well. Uh, I'm blessed beyond measure, truly. Yeah, you, you sure are. And one of the things I also wanted to ask you is, and I think this is a, 
uh, a remarkable time in the past decade when our soldiers came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Though there was a lot of disagreement about those wars inside America, unlike Vietnam, where the soldiers got treated poorly. I think they have truly, the country truly has understood uh, the service nature of the mission of our soldiers and have appreciated and I think paid great respect to our nation's soldiers this time around. But I've found that, and tell me if you are of the inclination, that our nation's officers are not finding that same respect. And, and talk a little about that before we go over to that, that great servant's heart of your wife and talk a bit more about her as we get to the adoption phase of your story. Sure. Well, uh, Mr. Aviv, uh, as you mentioned, uh, as you look across uh, our country as far as what's going on with uh, with our police officers, I mean, uh, in some regards, one uh, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. And yes, we, do we have uh, police officers out there making mistakes? Absolutely. Um, but I think uh, you can't uh, you can't take an isolated incident. Uh, where uh, a particular officer has done something wrong and then group everybody together. Um, I wear a uniform, uh, so yes, I'm a police officer. The best part about my job is the opportunity to go into schools and talk to children. And for children to understand when they look at me in a uniform, that's the job I do. That's not who I am, and that's the way it is with most of our police officers, okay? These are... Uh, husbands and wives; these are servants, trying trying uh, their best uh, to to provide a, a the best quality service they can to their communities. And in so doing, I know even myself. Uh, there's times that I might talk to a group of people, and just by something that I said uh, to offend someone. Not that I, I meant to by any, by any means, but just. Uh, the, uh, the conversation and, and how it went, just like whoever's listening uh, to this story, uh, how they might misconstrue something that's said. Uh, I mean, I just, again, I appreciate our police officers, and uh, I greatly appreciate uh, the Elizabethtown Police Department and the chief, uh, our police chief, Tracy Schuller. He is a true servant. He's a great leader, and he leads from the front. He uh, he doesn't have to say anything, but you look at the life that he models and, and what he does for our community. It's very easy to see how much, uh, as far as he cares and the compassion that he shows for each individual. And that's what it's about. It, it's caring. It's letting people know that they come first uh, to give that up, uh, give that person an opportunity to to be able to speak and then to to be a good listener and, and not trying to fix everybody's problems for the most part, just listening. Uh, to someone's story, kind of like what we're doing here. And just by them talking and being able to, to vent someone, for the most part, they can figure out what, what they need to do from that point. Right. And, Cindy, you know, you, you married a soldier, and now you're married to a, a police officer, and your your husband has talked about your servant heart, and I, and I assume, because I know it's true of my wife, her services to our kids, to our church, to our family, and to the, to the neighborhood— and 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 that's her service, and it's the most important service there is. And I think so often, particularly stay-at-home moms, are not uh, proffered the proper respect in our country. Uh, talk about how quickly you guys started to form that family of yours and talk about the, the, the kids that you gave birth to and uh, how many you had and talk a bit, a bit about their lives and their personalities before we then get to the adoption story in the next segment. Okay. 
Uh, well, I'll start by saying when I was a little girl, my, my dream job was to be a stay-at-home mom. And I'm probably one of the few people that can say that they've been able to do their dream job uh, for so so many years. But um, when, uh, when we first got married, Virgil was in Range Battalion. They were gone all the time. And so even though we were young, <laughs> we were blessed with enough wisdom to realize that we, we needed to spend as much time as we could together when he was off. And so we gave up uh, some of the, the things of the world uh, financial, financially just so that um, when he was home, I, I wasn't away working. We could spend time together and we could just focus on family and building our marriage. And then eventually uh, a couple of years into our marriage, when our first son came was born, um, we just... It, we just focused on family life, and that was that was we were both in agreement. So we we're very uh, fortunate that we and very blessed that we both had the same mindset on that. I, I wanted to stay home, and he was supportive of that. Uh, we um, Zeb is our oldest, and uh, so I, I was uh, 20 when Zeb was born, and 21 when Zach was born. So they're they're pretty close together in age, and uh, um, then Emily came along six years later. And we chose to homeschool the kids. So as of right now, I've been homeschooling, I think, about 24 years. <laughs> so the kids have been kind of the full-time job, and, and I love what I do for a living. And it tells you, you you were both on the cutting edge because homeschooling, when you probably started it, uh, was something that, well, you didn't probably have a lot of people even knew what you were talking about. And and now, my goodness, the number of Americans homeschooling their kids for religious reasons or just straight practical reasons yeah. because their kids have special needs, inner city moms who just want to keep their kids away from dangerous schools. It's become one of the great, uh, I think, national movements of our time that people aren't talking about. But but kudos to you. And, and that, how, did you enjoy that? What were the challenges for moms listening to that, uh, Cindy? Just about a minute. You know, what were the challenges and what were the rewards of homeschooling? challenge would be just making sure that I was not letting anything fall through the cracks, that, that they were getting a, a very rounded education. And, and it helped that I, I used a program that kind of provided all the curriculum so that I, I, I didn't let anything fall away. Uh, a huge benefit for us being in the military was the fact that every time we moved, we didn't have to start a new school system. And uh, so, you know, we could just take school with us. It helped that transition uh, so much. And uh, um also, just being able to have that really close relationship with the kids uh, is just, uh, it's, it was a precious gift that we had. And again, because we were so far away from the family, um, it, our, our bonds were just um, just very tight because of that. And, and they were, and they're close to each other also, um, Zeb, Zach, and Emily are as well. So it, that's, it was a huge benefit for us. Well, and when we come back, more from the Willoughby family. And what a thing to say on our air. We love to hear it. My dream job was a stay-at-home mom. And for the women who want that to be their dreams, they should be proud of that and be able to say that with pride. And we're glad to hear it on our airwaves. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and this is National Adoption Month. As you know, listening to this show, we love to spend hours sometimes on all kinds of subjects. We're going to be spending an hour on patent on Veterans Day. We've spent hours on all kinds of luminaries, but we also spend hours what we consider the real luminaries of the country, just ordinary folks doing extraordinary things, not famous people, not rich people, not people who built big businesses. And by the way, those people are a part of the American life too, but not enough and not often enough do we tell the stories of ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. Who are they? Where are they from? Why do they do what they do? And rejoining us are Cindy and Virgil Willoughby and their adoption story, which we're about to get into. But before we do, we were talking during the break about this idea of a servant's heart And as the kids were getting older, each of them was starting to leave the house. But the good news is each one of these kids had the same servant's hearts that both mom and dad did. Cindy, talk about each of the kids, Zeb, Zach, and Emily, and what they did and how they served and how they continue to serve. Okay, so Zeb is 31, and uh, Zeb served in the Air Force for five years. And uh, when he got out of the Air Force, and what he's still doing right now is he's a, a fireman here in, in the, the town that we live in. And uh, Zach is 30, and he went into the Army. He served um, he served a tour of Iraq and Afghanistan. He was in for six years. And, and our daughter, Emily, who was our baby for many, many years, uh, is, she's 24, and she is a nurse at the local hospital here. So they are, um, they do have servant hearts, and uh, just wanting to, to reach out and help other people is a desire that they all have. And a heart that they got from you both, and so much of this is animated, of course, by your faith. Uh, in the end, you have servant's hearts because it's commanded by you, um, by your faith, uh, to have such hearts. Uh, so now the kids are getting older, they start to leave the nest and, and mom, you're out of a job. Basically, <laughs> what happens next? Well, that's true. Uh, when uh, when Emily was getting ready to graduate high school, um, she was in her into, going into her senior year. When we um, we were reading a devotion, we were reading actually a Max Lucado devotion, and uh, um, our normal routine was I would read it in the morning, and then when Virgil was ready, right before we went to work, he would read it. The devotion that day was on uh, getting out of your comfort zone and start, stop sitting by the hearth and build a fire in your heart. And uh, so he gave some suggestions uh, for really living life. He said the goal is not to, to live long. The goal is to live. And some of the suggestions were like run for office, teach a Sunday school class, adopt. There were a few more other things that, so after Virgil had read it, I asked him, I said, did anything jump out at you about that devotion? He said, yeah, adoption did. And um, so I said, well, this is the same for me. And that was a Friday, and we were going away for a weekend. Actually, it was something we have, had really never done before, and it was Valentine's weekend. So uh, that weekend we took to just talk and pray about it, and by the time we come back home Sunday evening, uh, we were we were ready to start the process uh, to adopt. And you had never really discussed adoption before. This Max Licato, uh devotional, which you did separately, led you to the same conclusions without collaborating. Yes. Correct, yes. Uh, the Lord was really speaking uh, through that devotion to us both, and uh, so that gave us a, a real peace about it that we were, that, you know, 
the same thing speaking to both of us. So that was great. And 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 Virgil, yeah, you know, that had to really shock you as well. I mean, you know, you say that this thing adoption. There could have been a, a hundred thousand things you you could have chosen that that devotional could have called you to think about. Um, why and how did you come to that? And what was your reaction when your wife had the same exact intention? Um, it was, uh, in some regards, uh, very encouraging. Uh, also, uh, a little anxiety, for that matter, because we didn't know anyone that had adopted. But uh, that particular morning, uh, when, when I left for work, it's like, you know, adoption. And it's like with so many things. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has impressed upon my heart uh, many times to, to do X, Y, or Z. And for whatever reason, I said no, I was disobedient. And had no clue, had no clue where uh, God was going to lead us uh, by saying yes. And again, uh, so that there, this story, how it kind of plays out, uh, you can look back on it and just kind of see how God has, has directed this path. And it has. I mean, it's been a great faith builder. Uh, much encouragement to both Cindy and I, even to uh, our family, extended family, church family, and friends. And Cindy, you had a Cindy in your life who inspired you and led you down this road. Talk, Cindy, talk about your inspiration, or at least the person who led you down this road or helped lead you down this road. Cindy. Yes, there was a, and actually that was more with our, our second adoption um, that uh, that helped us try to decide whether we should or shouldn't adopt. And uh, she she was a lady that uh, that actually Virgil had met, and so we got to know her that way. And uh, she was in the process of adopting, I think, her fourth or fifth special needs child from China. She was a single mom. She was older than us, and it was an encouragement to see um, this lady step out by faith and, and bring the children home. We, we also, there was also a, another lady, her, her name is Carla, and she really walked with us our first adoption. Uh, when we, we were close to, we were close to leaving for China when we were introduced to Carla, and she was just a, a great source of encouragement as far as kind of what to expect. Um, she wrote letters for us to read while we were in China, kind of the different phases, and then, you know, after we got back, um, she's continued to be a, a great friend and, um, just uh, a joy to walk with, you know, in, in our adoption process. She had also adopted from China. So there were two ladies that, that were put into our path, not not originally, but uh, on into the process of adoption. And you've adopted how many kids in total? And talk about that very first adoption. And most important, Cindy, what were your kids' reactions to, to this as well? Well, I'll start with the kids' reactions. I guess first, because I will go in order here. But uh, when we told the boys, uh, they were great. They were excited. When we told Emily, uh, she was the only one still at home. And her first reaction was she didn't believe it. She just didn't think that it was just so, you know, out of the norm. And, um, it, like, again, we weren't around people, anybody that had really had adopted, especially international adoptions. And uh, so she was surprised. And uh, But... Once she saw us begin the paperwork, then she was excited, and uh, Emily actually traveled with us for the adoption, and um, she's um, she's just got a, a really special place, you know, with the girls, and 
course, being the older sister, I know that helps too. But um, but so so the kids they've been very um, our adult kids uh, are, are very loving. Our younger girls, all our adopted girls, love their older siblings, and it's always a big deal when we're all together. And, and that's probably one of well, it is. It's our, just a, our most favorite thing for all, you know all of us to be together sitting around the mill or whatever. It doesn't happen often because Zach lives, he and his family live in Iowa. So, but when, when they're home for a visit, there's just nothing sweeter to me than to hear all, all those kids' voices uh, together and all my grandkids' voices together. So, Well, when we come back, we're going to find out about these adopted kids, their names, some special stories, and what you would have to tell to our listeners who may be thinking about doing something like this. Something so daring and bold, but also something so beautiful. And when we come back, the Willoughby family, for the hour, a great American story about love and about faith in the end. And the kind of faith stories you don't hear on secular radio very often. And the kind we need to hear much more often. More after these messages. stories for the hour the willoughby family it's national adoption month and my goodness you're about to hear the adoption part of this adoption story but we learned about their hearts about their lives cindy and virgil because well if you're out there listening and you're thinking about adopting i think you've got to hear the full totality of the adoption story which starts with the marriage it starts with the existing family before you extend a family uh you need to know a bit about the family that dives into these matters and uh, we were talking during the break, and, and Virgil, I was going to ask him to, to walk us through this, and Virgil made it clear. He goes, look, I, I may be the resident cheerleader, and uh, I may be, you know, talking at a 30,000-foot level, but uh, Cindy's the one driving this bus. Uh, but, Virgil, you, yeah. you made a point earlier of talking about, you know, what your wife does each day and, uh, and how she drives the ship. And talk a bit about that before we pass it back to Cindy to talk about this this complicated international adoption work. Oh, um, I've heard it said, and I think it's very true, that uh, God's not going to impress something on your heart, that he's not going to take you through it. And I just want to mention James 127. Uh, from the NIV, it reads, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't know that scripture until after we'd adopted, and and that has uh, has rang true uh, for uh, for us. Uh, we do uh, want to look out for orphans the best we can, and and it, it even in my own life uh, was I corrupted by the world? Probably so. I was more concerned about my four hundred one k and retirement and things of that nature. But what I'll say about adoption uh, is that since we brought uh, our children 
home. Uh, it's taken my focus off me and put my focus on greater things. And so what you know, like I've been, been very fortunate in that aspect. And, and lucky to have a wife who, who, who executed on this stuff, Virgil. So Cindy, to you now for the, for the family and particularly, I think uh, very often the wives have to carry some of the burden, especially the women who are the stay at home moms. And I don't mean burden in a bad way. I just mean the work has to get done. Uh, talk, people through this international adoption process you've now adopted how many kids let folks know how many kids you've already adopted where from and the types of kids you've adopted age and everything else okay we've adopted seven girls all from china different provinces um we do have four of our girls two from one province two from another but they were not even the same cities and so just pretty much scattered from one end of China to the other is where the girls came from. Ellie came home in uh, 2010, and she, at that, that time, she was six years old. Um, when we, we had been home for just a short while and um, just felt like the Lord was leading us to bring home another daughter, so we started the paperwork again. While we're waiting for this daughter, who would be Inya Lee, uh, we we got an email from uh, a lady advocating for a, a girl who was aging out of the system. And now when you age out in China, that means you turn 14. And on your 14th birthday, you can no longer be adopted. Um, so this, this girl was aging out, and she had severe scoliosis, and, and needed, she needed medical care. And more than that, she needed a family. So uh, we had not planned on bringing home two, but uh, that was the Lord's plan all along. And so we did a, a mound of paperwork in a very short amount of time. And 10 weeks after we saw her picture for the first time, we were bringing her home. And so we actually landed back in Louisville 15 minutes before she turned 14. So we, we brought home Inya and Xiaoyin in uh, May of 2011. Um, 2012 was spent with a lot of doctor's appointments. Xiaoyin spent a, year, uh, a month in Cosairs, having four major spinal surgeries. Um, and we have a, a lot of healing going on that year. The following year, 2013, in May of that year, we adopted Shimi and Nini, and they were both five at that time. And, uh, and then in 2015, in September of 2015, we adopted Aaron, who uh, at that time was 12, and Maymay, who was six at that time. Amazing. And and several of the girls have disabilities. And Cindy, you, you said something interesting in the pre-interview. You said, quote, they say special needs, but they're just special, these kids. Everybody has needs. Somebody's needs may just be different than others. Some may be more obvious. Uh, talk about this uh, distinction in your mind, Cindy. Well, I've heard it. Somebody said, I don't even know where the quote is, but uh, or who, who gave, did the quote, but it said that they're not disabilities, they're different abilities. And, and that is so true because um, one of our daughters, Nini, she had uh, untreated hydrocephalus, and, uh, and she uh, had brain damage because the, she was never given the care that she needed. And she will always, she'll, she'll be with us forever, and, uh, and, which is, is it's wonderful. And, but... Uh, so, but she has such a tender heart, such a considerate heart. When someone is upset, she's the first one to get Kleenexes and try to comfort them. And I mean, 
she just has such a sweet spirit about her. And sometimes we get so focused on our our athletic abilities or our, the appearance or so many external things, and, and we're not looking at the heart. And uh, all of our girls were on the China special needs list. And um, so some were very, very minor needs, and some were quite a bit more extensive. But um, the needs... The needs do not define our girls. Our girls are incredible. They are empathetic, and they're uh, because they've they've suffered, and so they know, and they they really feel people's suffering and, and their pain. And uh, they're also so grateful for everything that they get. Um, that uh, it, it it's just changed the way that I look at life. They have a, a zest for life and enthusiasm for life that. I just never experienced. I took so much for granted before the girls came home, and uh, and they just um, just, just awakened something that I did not, you know, I didn't know that I was missing. Uh, but um, so when people see special needs or they see the special needs list, the the words scare them, and and I'll be the first to say a lot of the words scare me too. You know, when I when you look at them, but uh, when you break it down. I'll, so many of the needs are really just not that big a deal. They're just kind of part of day-to-day life. And um, you you learn how to advocate medically for your child, and, and then you just, you know, and then you just live life and enjoy it. And you don't um, you don't stress about that, that term anymore because you don't even think about it. You just are focused on the child themselves and, and, and what a precious gift they are that, that God has given us. And Virgil, what advice, and I'm going to ask you both this to close out the hour, uh, what advice would you give to people looking to adopt or in the beginning stages of adoption, given that you've learned so much? Um, probably just keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, this is for the child. Uh, it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, from start to finish for us, for, for each one of our children, has been anywhere from 12 to 14, 15 months. So uh, you're in this for the long haul. Be patient. Uh, again, just to continue to pray. Uh, continue, uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, the, uh, seek out someone who has who has walked this trail. Uh, I think we we as men, a lot of times, uh, we straighten our backs and it's like we've got this thing, in regards of what it is and yep. why. But uh, reach out, uh, look for someone that, that has walked this this path before, because. There's so much to be gleaned from someone who's been there, done that. And uh, keep in mind, we're, at our age, we are technically grandparents raising our children. Uh, so, uh, like I said, little little things, and I think Cindy alluded to it, uh, as, as young parents, things that, that we uh, let get in the way. Um, here, a good example would be, I want my children to act such and such because they're a direct, direct reflection of me. Uh, get get over yourself. I need to get over myself as a young parent. I'm just trying to survive, put food on the table. Uh, but truly, uh, get rid of your phones, get rid of your social media, spend time with your children wherever you're at. And it doesn't matter uh, where the where your children come from, biological or, or adopted, spend more time with your kids. That's great advice. And about a minute, Cindy, the same question to you, and, and particularly to the moms, um, advice uh, to them, if you could. Yeah, I, I agree with Virgil. Having someone or a group of people that uh, that you can connect with that have similar needs would be great. 
There is a, a website called No Hands But Ours. Uh, there's also one called RainbowKids.com that kind of give you a wealth of information how to start the process, what all the words mean, but then it also will connect you with resources, whether a um, like a Facebook group or uh, someone that's blogging about their life, you know, dealing with special needs. Uh, you need to to be able to 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 know that there's others out there that are experiencing the same thing and be encouraged by that and be an encouragement to others. And uh, um, just, I mean, really, prayer, prayer is such a big thing. I mean, it is the thing you, you need the most to give you the strength and wisdom to, to go through each day. And you need a group of people that will come alongside of you and love on you and love on your children. We have been very blessed to have had that with our family and friends, and everybody needs that. Well, everybody does need that. We all need the prayer. We need the family and The servant's heart. I think that's what really we come away with from this hour. The Willoughby family, what a beautiful, beautiful story. Cindy and Virgil Willoughby doing God's work and doing the kind of work that more Americans need to hear about. And by the way, replicate. And if you're interested, again, that's rainbowkids.com. And that's Cindy's recommendation is is a great source. If you're thinking of adopting, do it. And as Virgil said, keep the main thing the main thing. I love that. This is Our American Stories.